Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. Last week we kicked off the PG series and introduced the core idea of the series that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has a tremendous amount of thoughtful and very practical applications to parenting. We talked about how great and how impossible the parenting task was for us to form a human soul. And in order, so in order to be great parents, we need to start with confession. We need to learn to identify with our children rather than be parenting from a place of, I have arrived. And we need to constantly learn to be ambassador parents instead of owner parents. And we also discussed in that context how every one of us, even if you don't have children, are called to mother and father people by letting God work through you to shape other people's souls. And along the way, we had some fun with some book titles that just make parenting seem too easy and formulaic with promises of easy steps to making everything great. And it's so much more than easy steps. In fact... In the trenches in parenting, I think the title of this book, Duct Tape Parenting, is more often what parenting feels like. Just trying to figure it out and improvise in the moment. See? Duct tape really does fix anything. And oftentimes, on all too many days in parenting, I think this card describes what a win is. Clean up puke without puking yourself. That's a win in the parenting book. Or... In the case of Wendy, for whom that is nearly impossible, it meant one day when I was on a business trip in California years ago and one of our children, who was a 360-degree vomiter, managed to puke. And she made it through cleaning the walls and the child. But the rest of the bedding and clothes she wadded up and threw out on the deck until I got home several days later. That is all too often the reality of parenting. And yet God gives us the task of forming other people's souls, whether our children or in friendships or in the ways we work with people. And it is a beautiful calling for all of us that God wants us to enjoy doing well. And our series, our desire for this series is that we encourage each other in our parenting. See, back when we were just starting to have kids many years ago, we were part of a community where uh, there were some really rigid parenting classes. And those classes seemed to spawn an environment where everyone was judge, uh, judging each other, uh, how well they were doing and how well their kids behaved. And if the kids weren't behaving well, well, the parents weren't doing a very good job. And that was stressful. And that's not at all the goal of this series. You see, the gospel has a lot to say about how we think about and do parenting. But the bottom line of the gospel is we are all sinners and we're parenting sinners. And therefore, parenting is going to be messy no matter how good we do it. You see, but God wants to work in those messy moments and the power of the gospel is so tremendous. See, last week I closed the service asking how many of you have ever fought with your spouse or in the case of being a supervisor at work have ever fought with a colleague over whether it was best to throw the rule book at someone who needed discipline or give them grace. Now, I'm a person who most naturally defaults to the rules side of the equation. It's kind of the personal responsibility, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. All life takes is good character and a work ethic to succeed kind of mentality that seems to fit my highly driven task-oriented personality and was part of my upbringing. 
See, it was the stories like my dad talking about working on the farm, falling out of the haymow onto a pitchfork that literally stuck in the side, in his side, in his ribs, pulling it out, pouring alcohol on the wounds, bandaging them up, and finishing the day of work that kind of shaped me and what I thought responsibility and success was in life. It was, so it's what drove me to workaholism and four years of depression right after college. And even today, after working off many rough of those rough edges of that bent in my life, I still have a propensity to lean toward the rules in parenting and, and in how I even reparent myself, how I treat myself when I see areas in which I want to grow personally, how I talk to myself in those moments. You see, I tend to see an issue and figure out how to change behavior and wow, expect all of it to be better. Problem solved. But what we're learning is that shaping a soul, well, that's not quite so easy. We have to get to the heart. And so it's not just behavior, behavior control, but heart freedom and peace that we're after. So for some of you, you also lean toward rules. And you believe with better rules, better systems, better, more fair consequences that the behavior problems, the procrastination, and the lack of helpfulness around the house from your children would all be largely solved. And when it comes to personal change, you also tell yourself some pretty strong words in your thoughts that may sound all too much like your parents or some other authority figure saying, just be more disciplined, just follow the right rules better, work harder. And if you want to change, you may be right to an extent. You know, I get that thinking all too well. And the frustration that you can feel toward yourself or others when rules aren't followed well, I I get that. And for some of you, you get irked because your spouse doesn't follow through consistently with consequences or chores lists or rules. And you think they offer too much grace or offer grace in the wrong way or at the wrong time and are making your kids too soft and not accountable. And you might be right. And they may need to change. Or they may be right and you may need to change. More than likely, both of you need to refine the way you think about rules, law, and grace and the way you think to change to be better parents and grow. See, what we're talking about today in this part one of part two, uh, kind of in the middle of this series, is how beautiful and good the law is and how desperately our children and you and I need the right rules. And we're also going to talk about how the law, how rules have limits as to what they can accomplish. So this is part one of part two. So I promise you today that you're going to leave with some unanswered questions and a desire for more. And hopefully you'll get that next week and in the coming weeks. We've all heard the conversations with people whose circumstances sounded something like this as well, haven't we? You see Beth and Joe sat across the table so absolutely disheartened. They had worked as hard as any I had ever known to be great parents. They had been thoughtful and clear in the rules and the consequences for misbehavior with their children, so even-handed that they didn't compromise. They taught their kids that rules lead them to a faithful and blessed response to God and wanting their kids to live God's way and learn by quick obedience to them as parents a habit of quick obedience to God. Their daughter, Emily, who for so long loved being a part of church, learning memory verses and being a part of children and youth activities, now at 17 years old, was constantly pushing back and constantly rebellious. She seemed to love the world and its ways far more than God. And if she went to church, she went dragging her feet and refused to actively participate. She mocked the rules of her parents, told her parents repeatedly, I can hardly wait to get out of the house so I don't have to follow your rules anymore. Beth and Joe were exhausted from the conflict, from waiting up so 
many nights wondering when Emily was going to get home after disobediently staying out after curfew or sneaking out against their will. And as they talked, Beth and Joe went back and forth between the stories of difficulty and the stories of remembering Emily as the sweet, cuddly, compliant little girl that she was most of her growing up years. Now, maybe you personally relate to that story as a child to parents or as uh, parents to your children, or, or maybe you'll relate to this one. I remember so many times with my toddler and early elementary age kids using the old count to three method of getting them to obey. You know, one, two, three, you don't want to know what's going to happen, right? Uh, but as time went on, when I found myself in settings where larger consequences would have been difficult or too public of a display, I felt like I needed to add weight to my words by prefacing the counting with something you've probably done too, saying, you don't want to know what's going to happen when I get to three. Kind of so as to give the child more time to rethink what they're doing, right? Or more often than not, saying with absolute clarity what would happen if I got to three, and then hating it when I had to follow through with that threat. See, I also remember getting to the point where counting to three didn't work so well. The older they get, you get to three, and the child sits there defiantly looking at you, saying non-verbally, so what now, Dad? And sometimes they were precocious enough to actually say, is three all the higher you can count to? I can count higher than that, Dad. (laughs) See, sometimes the precocious rebellion is just cute enough to really make it hard, the discipline. You just want to laugh. That's just the reality. Or maybe consider the example of Jake, a quiet, not very talkative soul. He's the child who holds everything close to the chest. And it's really difficult to ever get into his inner world. Yet Jake has always been so amiable and nice. He's a good worker, a great student, just such a nice son. And as Jake enters his junior and senior year, he starts spending more and more time at a friend's house. At first it seems good. I mean, he's doing friend stuff after all and not being alone, right? But then you begin to wonder. Something isn't right. But you can't put your finger on it till one day you discover Jake and his friend are doing drugs and watching porn when they're together. Your response as a good parent is to take the keys, set an earlier curfew, demand Jake not hang out with that friend anymore. You have regular inspections of his room and backpack to ensure drugs are not in the house. You limit time behind closed doors, no internet screen time by himself, even at home. Yet the only result is Jake becomes more withdrawn, is rarely amiable, is almost always defiant, and you discover over and over again that he still finds ways to spend time with his friend. He's still getting access to the drugs all too often, and he regularly sneaks screen time to watch porn. The common thread of these stories is what? They're stories of parents who had good rules and enforced those rules even-handedly and fairly. There are stories of children who, for most of their life, and for some even still in most areas of their lives at this time, are compliant to the rules, yet the children, well, they're not doing well. See, as parents, we know our children need to grow in character. Character is the ability to say no to the right things and yes to the right things in life, like obedience or faithfulness or respect or honesty or willingness to respond to authority or work ethic or lots of other things as well. Character is a major goal for all of us in parenting. And because it is a major goal, we all tend to rely on a tool chest of something that we use to shape that character, to change the lives of our children. And each of the stories I shared, the tool chest being relied upon to bring character and change is rules and law. And if you were to honestly look at the past 
several months of your own life, what are you primarily relying on to shape the character of your children or to shape your own character for that matter? Is it enforcement of rules? Now, here's a tough question. Are you possibly making the same mistake the parents in these illustrations made? Is there a better approach to shaping character that lasts? Can I ask you what might even be a tougher question? If you are a follower of Jesus, how does the gospel cause you to parent any different than your moral atheist neighbor? What would your kids say the difference is between your parenting and the parenting of those who are good, moral people but have no faith? See, even society values characters. Our character, our schools have things like the four pillars of character, and they may be a little different with each school, but they're like things like trustworthy and respect and courage and truthfulness. Is there anything different about your parenting as Christ's followers? See, American sociologist and distinguished book award winner Christian Smith did a landmark study interviewing thousands of American youth asking what young people from Christian homes believed. The majority of them said Christianity is a set of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. Essentially to them, Christianity was a moralistic, therapeutic deism designed to make them feel good about themselves and to live so God would give you good stuff. That's the message too many of our kids are getting from us. With various studies showing between 50 and 80% of kids raised in the Christian church leaving their Christian faith after high school graduation, could it be that the Christianity they have heard and been told is not true Christianity? What they've heard is, say please, thank you, share your toys, and you'll make Jesus smile. And don't hang out with bad people, and God will give you good stuff if you do those things. Now, we know that's not the gospel message. But that is all too often what our children are coming away with. You see, one of the problems for millions of parents today, and especially Christian parents, is that we tend to ask the law, ask rules to do what only grace can do because we don't understand the valuable purpose or the limits of law. For that matter, we often don't really understand what grace really is either when it comes to parenting. So we default to religious rules to shape the character of our children. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, The truth needs to be considered and needs to shape everything you do as a parent. If rules and regulations had the power to change the heart and the life of your child, rescuing your child from himself or giving him a heart of submission and faith, Jesus would never have had to come. See, if we use law's rules as our primary tool, then law will be what our children expect to see and respond to when they leave home. And since when they leave home, there's generally no one there to enforce the rules, they will end up lacking the internal fortitude to navigate life well. And at that point, more than likely, they'll go one of two ways, either become shallow and self-righteous, cold and judgmental religious people as they hear the rules loudly yelling at them in their head and they look down at others who do not live up to their standard, or they'll fall apart and question all law and question themselves and even question God. And sometimes that will look like blazing rebellion and kids who can't wait to get out of the house. Or it may look like kids who now as young adults are simply disengaged and don't see a need for faith. See, when we look at parenting, specifically your own parenting, 
Tripp goes on to say that all too often the gospel that forms our theology and is supposed to form our lives isn't forming our parenting. See, the gospel has so much insight to give us into law and rules and grace. So let's dive into our focus for today, which is to discuss the value and limits of law or rules in parenting. See, we'll do that by asking two questions of the gospel teachings. What are What is the law good for? And what are the limits of the law? So, what is the law good for? The law rules are absolutely essential in parenting and in all of our lives if we ever want to grow. The Bible says this on the subject in Romans 7. He says, so my brothers and sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he wants good stuff from our lives to bear fruit. For It goes on, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? So Paul is asking the, the question that we all ask. I mean, so does this, this, what does this mean about the law? Is it good or is it bad? He goes on to say, is the law sinful? And Paul says, certainly not. It's actually really, really good. He says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So skipping down to verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let's... Take a look at that and try to understand what's actually being said there. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is that the law has a powerful right place in our lives. And one of the greatest values, maybe the greatest value of the law, is that law or rules help us know what sin is. It helps us understand healthy and unhealthy, right and wrong, the best versus a corruption of that which is best. And as Paul says, without the law, I would not have known what coveting is. Now, now some of you might hear that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Lots of people who do not know the law and do not know the law of the Bible believe coveting or believe wanting something that someone else has so much that it drives you to have to get it and steals your content. That's a bad thing. So that's just kind of a ridiculous statement. We don't need the biblical law for that. And that is, of course, true that people without the Bible's law know coveting is bad. But you see, Paul addresses that earlier in Romans where he develops the idea that God has made within all of humanity a general sense of the law that is inherently understood. It's called, in theological terms, general revelation. So something that everybody knows, this law is not just in a book, it's a law that's inside of us. It's a conscience that leads us toward right and wrong that's built into the fabric of who we are by God. So God's law, both general and a specific, specific being the written word of the Bible, teaches us what is right and what is wrong. So Paul's statement, we wouldn't know that coveting is sinful without the law. Whether we know that through general revelation or specific revelation is true and completely understandable. Now, we can ignore conscience and by ignoring it, harden our hearts. But the conscience is there. 
And it's a gift of God's law to us. And even if it is corrupted and ignored to the point that our conscience becomes hard and we become deaf to it, well, general revelation is still good and specific revelation of the law through the Bible is even better, more clear and easier to understand and follow. So the law or rules establish, if you will, the rumble strips, you know, those things that make your wheels sound horrible when you drive off the edge of the road or the guardrails of the highway of our lives. So that when we begin to go off the road, there is this warning sign that goes off. And when we continue to go off, there's a this protective damage or pain as you hit the guardrails. And if you continue to go further through those, the pain and the damage is even greater. But, but, but that's just the negative way of looking at it, that the law makes us aware of sin. Let, let's look at the positive flip side of that as well and talk about that a little bit more. The, the law outlines, and that's this, the law outlines healthy character that makes us prosperous and successful. So Joshua 1 says this, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And then you will be prosperous and successful. So meditate day and night. So he's saying develop daily habits of not just reading, but meditating, seeking understanding, going through your day, trying to figure out where the law gives wisdom for your daily living and being careful to do everything. You see, there's this priority of focus and action. See, even if you don't understand the law or you find something in the Bible or the law to be rigid and you go, I just really don't really know if that's something we need to do, you don't actually discover the law's goodness or any other way than through obedience through trying it out, letting God prove its goodness to you in your life. See, in Romans 7, Paul goes on to to remind us of another powerful good reason for the law, bringing us back to where we were last week. The law leads us to a place of confession, admitting that we need to be saved. A few verses later in Romans 7, Paul says, So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. We all want to do right in so many ways, but we don't. But I see, he goes on to say, another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. He's just, he's just getting at this idea that we want to do things, but we continue to fail even at the things we know we want to do better all too often. And he goes on and says, what a wretched man I am. Who will... Rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the goal of parenting is to point our children to God's grace, which changes their heart from the pressure to measure up to all the rules to the overwhelmingly accepted and loved peace and joyful gratitude as the motivation behind all of life. See, including why we pursue learning to love and live the law of God. That is the power of grace. The distinctive between Christian parenting and a moral atheist parenting that is found in our schools or in many of our lives or many of the parenting guidebooks is grace. So the commands of God say things like, we should be loving and kind and forgiving as well as just. Or it might say we should be generous and giving or we should care for others' needs above our own or, or we should be patient or we need to be persevering under hardship or we should be good and honest workers. And the Bible has so many guidelines like that for development of our character, all ideas that give good outlines to character development, health, and success. 
But listen to what Paul says. Because he also immediately highlights an enduring problem, which leads us to the major limit of the law. Paul talks about something that probably every one of us here has said or joked about, and we know it to be true. Look at verse 8 again. It says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Now, what is this opportunity sin has in the law? Well, the opportunity is how deeply and utterly sin has infected our being. If I told you you can't have chocolate, what, what does that make you want to do? Eat chocolate, right? Uh, The opportunity sin has with the law is to drive us to want the opposite. And see, we know that to be true because every single one of us here, I'm sure, has said repeatedly throughout our lifetime, if you want a child to do bad behavior, tell them not to do it, right? So there's rebellion, there's self-centered ego, a need to be in control in all of us. That is anti-authority and anti-law and anti-rules. We, we don't want to be told what to do. When we are told we cannot have something, there's something inside of us that wants to say, yes, I can. <laughs> or to say, I don't believe you, so I want to try it on for myself so I can be the judge of it. So we've already started to answer our second question. What is the limit of the law? So let's spell it out really clearly. The law can't change the heart of a person. See, that's the reason Isaiah's prophecies about Jesus talk about a time when the Messiah will come and make a way for us to have a new heart. That's part of the reason Paul contrasts the flesh being in control and the spirit being in control. See, in the stories of parenting we talked about earlier, we saw that compliance to the rules did not mean a changed heart. And a heart that is not changed will always eventually reveal itself in words and actions. Rules may get compliance from your children for a time. Why? Because your child wants to avoid consequences. And why is that? Because the consequences don't fit with what your child wants. But the heart motivation of your child is still about getting what they want. Your child's heart is not really changed yet. You see, relying on the law is limited because what it makes us into as a parent as well is the lawgiver, the prosecutor, the judge in the eyes of your children. And how many lawbreakers like and have a soft heart toward the prosecutor and the judge? Not many, right? And truth be told, isn't that how we respond to God all too often as prosecutor and judge? Isn't that what's going on, what is going on inside each of us when we distance ourselves from God or, or get angry with God? We're reacting to rules, to conscience, to feeling unworthy, that we must not be measuring up. And we hear the voices of our parents or other authority figures that say, just obey, be a good person, and God will always bless you. Just get your act together. Why is law unable to change the heart of a person? It's because the law is not personal. And the heart can only be changed by something much, much more personal. Something that touches and changes the heart of a person. A law or a rule just says how high I should jump. And it can't provide the want to or the freedom or safety to do the law by itself. Now, there are some things you can do to help make the law work a little bit better for you. And the American church, frankly, hasn't always modeled this very well. But let me give you an example. The law of God says sex is beautiful, created by God, and it is only to happen in the context of marriage. So how do you teach that to your children? Do you just teach it on the basis of fear? You need to avoid STDs. 
You need to avoid the pain of, rep- of repeated rejection that comes with casual sex and the making and breaking of those emotional and physical attachments and the pain of constant breakups and, and rejection. You see, those arguments are, are fine, but you're only talking about the consequences. And if you hadn't already figured this out, sex is something that is pretty exciting and can feel pretty good. And those, those consequences aren't often enough to make people say, no, I, I want to stay abstinent until marriage and not experience that thrill now. See, we need to do much more in the way we communicate about the law. We need to attach the law to the goodness of God. And, and, and oftentimes, even when we think about that, we just think about the God's self-interest in that. But that, that's not really the point. It's, it's God's good interest for you because then the law might have a chance of beginning to touch the heart of the person just, just a little bit. And how do we do that? See, one of the most painful experiences in life is what? Is a husband or a wife having an affair? And that hurts so much because why? Well, it violates trust, right? It, it, it violates the promises made at marriage. But, but at an even more fundamental level, it violates the widely held, again, general revelation ideal that God has placed in all of us that absolute faithfulness to you is part of what it means for someone to truly love you. Talk to your children about what love really is. What kind of blessing the law of faithfulness is leading them toward? And point out the positive and negative examples of that rule being followed or broken to your children and the lives of people around them. Talk about why so many people get mad at someone who is unfaithful. Talk to them about the dream to learn to be a faithful person in a faithful love relationship in a beautiful family. Faithfulness is a character quality. Rules define boundaries that shape our character, our yeses and noes. But, but character is not something you turn on and turn off like a switch. No, character is like a muscle that has to be trained to be strong or like cardio conditioning that results in your endurance. Help your child to see the dream of whatever the rule or law is pointing to. Help attach that dream to the heart of what the child is longing for, to be loved, longing to one day have a happy marriage and a happy family. It's important to have those conversations of highlighting the goodness, the beauty, the promise around all the rules God talks about and the rules you, even as parents, make in parents. Parenting. You see, do this kind of talking about the goodness of God's law, even down to the little rules in life. Why do you have a rule to put your dishes away after eating? Why do you have rules around chores? What is the reason for curfew? And don't just come up with one reason. Come up with many reasons for each of those because there are many beautiful benefits of even those small rules when it comes to character and relationships and all sorts of things. How we talk about the rules is even more important than having rules and how we enforce them. See, heart change is what we're after. And while rules and law form the boundaries of right and wrong and character development, even with talking about the good and the promise of the rules, law can't change the heart of a person. In fact, as Paul started out highlighting and we talked about earlier, rules tend to provoke temptation in us to break the rules. See, law, as as good and necessary as it is, is completely powerless to change the heart. We're going to talk about getting to the heart change in our children and ourselves and others next week because grace rightly applied and thought about is where the power to change the heart is at. But even then, too often the way we think about grace is we think about it inadequately and it undermines this character development and heart change. See, the kind of grace Jesus lived out and modeled for us is 
what changes hearts. The, the, kind that saw, the kind that saw tax collectors and prostitutes and arrogant theologians and jealous brothers all saved and transformed. That saw the sick healed and the lame walk and the hopeless filled with hope. That kind of grace is what God wants to pour out through your parenting for you, for your children, and for the world to enjoy. Rules are good, but not good enough in and of themselves. We want our kids to love the law of God, to value the wisdom and character that rules can bring. Their lives are blessed and they bless others, but, but it's only through the grace of Jesus that we become free and empowered to change because it's only that grace that changes our heart's motivation. It is the bedrock of Christian parenting. Go ahead and come on up, worship team. So if one of your adult friends were to ask, how do I receive salvation? And another friend sitting there with you said to them, just live the Ten Commandments and obey all the rules. If you heard that, you would say, no, you, you can't do that. No one can follow the law perfectly. All of us fall short in sin. All of us need the forgiving grace of a Savior to save us. It's Jesus' amazing love demonstrated in Him as God coming to live among us and sacrifice His own life in order to secure perfect forgiveness for us that brings us salvation and gives us true peace and lets us live life free out of gratefulness instead of the pressure of needing to measure up. What's the message your kids hear about the gospel and the way you parent them, in the way you talk about and use rules in discipline. Religion says, I strive to obey so that I will be accepted by God. But the gospel, the really good news of Jesus says, I am accepted by God through Jesus, and therefore I obey freely out of loving, joyful gratitude. Are you parenting as a follower of Jesus any different than the moral atheist? How would your children describe the gospel based on how you parent them and how you use rules with them? Would you stand with me and pray? Lord, we just we stand before you and this just, we just feel so inadequate because, Lord, even I, I just, I just use rules so wrong so many times as a parent or in relationships. I speak to myself even wrongly through the way I try to allow myself to be reparented and grow using rules so wrong. And yet, Lord, your rules and your wisdom, your, your laws, they are beautiful. They are holy. They lead us to grace and to power and to beauty in life. Lord, I pray that you would come to us and by your grace, by your presence right now, just come and shed abroad your forgiveness on us. And let us know that in such a deep, deep way that we find ourselves at peace, even while still struggling in the middle of our imperfection because of the great grace of your forgiveness and your empowerment and your love over our lives, that you would call us to such a beautiful task as parenting or shaping the souls of others through our friends or our workplaces, and that you want to see us succeed in that. So, Lord, I pray that you'd come to us through this series, through these coming weeks, and that you'd help all of us take steps to be closer to that joy and that peace and that freedom and the power of that blessing you want to bring through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.